0: been wondering, what is the secret of your success with men? Ah, my success with men. I'm so glad you asked me this. You know, there are many women who are more beautiful than I. <laughs> Perhaps as beautiful, but they do not possess the knowledge of the love eyes. When I want a man, I make the love eyes at him like this. All the wonderful things we would do together, if we were in love. Looks into my eyes and he sees them, and he's captivated. Why not? I'm captivated myself. That is the secret of my success, the love. Language, it sounds wonderful. Oh, it is the. You're listening to Episode 74 of Sass Mouth Dames Podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Ava Gabor had a theory about cigarette holders. In her tangy memoir, Orchids and Salami, named after the two things she had in her refrigerator when she was writing, she pondered the seemingly endless checklist that was attached to the business of beauty. She observed men have many different concepts of glamour, As fast as you fulfill the conditions of one, they invent another. You may be stretching your torso, massaging your face, sleeping special beauty sleeps, only to discover that all you need is a long cigarette holder. This makes men happy and keeps them out of the pool room. Such men don't really like women, but they are crazy about cigarette holders. The whole thing is much too psychological for me. Ava Leveson said why men love cigarette holders. Not to run too loose in the fields of Freudian interpretation, but it's not a big stretch to see why men might be drawn to a woman holding a long thing in her mouth. There's another story in Orchids and Salami that features a cigarette holder. When she was 16, Ava was devastated by the betrayal of her first love, a boy named Pishta. One day, she caught him kissing her best friend. At that moment, when she saw Pishta with her best friend, she made a solemn vow. I reconciled myself to a career as a femme fatale. The bodies of men who killed themselves for the love of me would heap high as I smoked my cigarette in a long holder at the gaming table. And people would wonder what made me so cold and heartless, never knowing that beneath my icy beauty, a hot-flamed, burned, an indelible wound in my heart, a wound whose convolutions form the sacred name of Pishta. A woman scorned hides behind her cigarette holder, with glamour as a first line of defense, a weapon against the fickle favors of men. If her sister Zsa, Zsa was known for her nine husbands, Ava Gabor was known for blanking on her husbands. She walked out on her first husband for a studio contract. She left her second husband a full-fledged millionaire to take up a career on the New York stage. Once, in an elevator, Ava turned to a man next to her and said, Do I know you? The man replied, yes, I was your third husband. He was the Hollywood plastic surgeon that Ava had married for six months in 1956. Husband number three had been thrown out of the house by Marlena Dietrich, but I'll get to that later. For Ava Gabor, men were accessories rather than the goal or the whole ensemble for living. Most likely, Ava was in the middle of writing her memoirs at the ripe age of 34, when she made Paris Model in 1953, and inserted a, biz of bi- a bit of business with a cigarette holder, since it was still fresh in her mind. 1953 was a busy year for Ava. She finished a national tour of Strike a Match, a play directed by Mel Farrar she appeared in a television version of Suspense. She had her own weekly television chat show, The Ava Gabor Show. She made radio appearances. She wrote her book, and then she filmed Paris Model for American Pictures distributed by Columbia Studio. Paris Model borrows the trend for separate story vignettes around a theme with the closest resemblance to Tales of Manhattan directed by Julian de Vivier which was released in 1942. De Vivier's picture told separate stories about what happened to men who wore a formal evening tailcoat. Paris Model sets up the same plot device, only it's a couture Paris gown, and it's American knockoff. Paris Model sews together four 20-minute vignettes. The cocktail dress is French couture, which is secretly copied by a sketch artist spying for an American department store. The knockoff is on sale in New York before the spy's bags are unpacked. In the opening scene of the first story, Ava Gabor plays Gogo Montaigne, a celebrated beauty known for her ability to have men at her feet. Ava lingers at the entrance of a Parisian atelier, pausing to light a cigarette. She plucks one from her handbag, screws it into her cigarette holder. And then, as if summoned by magic, a man appears at her side with a light. Gogo accepts the light. Then she relaxes, and she stretches out the adjustable cigarette holder to its full jaw-dropping length. Gogo's cigarette holder is at least a meter long. It's skinny, glamorous, and way over the top. Ava Gabor's gag is as old as the hills and yet somehow as evergreen as fresh tulips in March. When a woman poses with an extra-long cigarette holder, she's like a general in front of a map planning where to strike next. Ava's character does have a plan of attack. She wants a dress to make a man fall to pieces. The bu- the boutique's manager shows Gogo a collection of gowns on mannequins who are so tall and thin they must have renounced brie and baguette. The boutique manager glides over. She's so used to helping women get what they want. What she wants is to know what's the secret for Gogo's success with men. Ava smiles and shares her method of conquest. I give him the love eyes. She looks a man in the eyes, and she thinks about all the things they will do together if they were in love. In turn, the man sees it in her eyes and becomes mesmerized. The film gives us a montage for demonstration, with a close-up on a pair of cartoon eyes with fake lashes. All the while, the mannequins parade around the shop, showing various cocktail dresses, The last to appear is called Nude at Midnight. It's a strapless dress with a low heart-shaped neckline and a full bicolor skirt and a slit that goes up to the mid-thigh. Ava squeals with delight when she sees it, adding her own little touch to the design by saying she would like it cut lower in front. With a price tag of $890, the next order of business involves choosing the right man to send the bill. The manager su- suggests a sucker with deep pockets, and both the women are happy. It goes without saying that Gogo does not pay her own dress bill. Ava Gabor never committed to self-satire the way her sister Zsa, Zsa did, and that's not a value judgment. Where Zsa, Zsa used her Hungarian accent as a comic foil or maybe a shield, Ava took an actorly approach. It might have begun when her older sisters were away in a Swedish finishing school and Ava stayed at home with an English governess. Ava Gabor has a more continental and less specific accent. And there are times during her segment of Paris Model that she sounds like Ava Gardner especially when she says things like, how perfectly charming. She has the studio training imprinted in her voice and demeanor. The second scene opens in Gogo's bedroom on the night of her date with a Maharaja Kim Kapoor, who happens to be played by Tom Conway in a jeweled turban. She begins the date where she means it to end by asking him to take care of the zip on her nude at midnight. Despite the production code rules, GoGo has no interest in marrying this guy. She just wants to go to bed with him. I suppose they get away with it because the story is set in Paris, not in the US. Sex has to be on her mind because there's little to recommend the playboy. He drives a fast car, but he moves at a glacial pace. Their date looks unbearably dull. He's planned dinner and gambling at a casino. Gogo seems to lack the kind of energy to meet the evening. At dinner, the running gag is that he orders the cheapest, most plain dishes on the menu, rather than the Epicurean delights the waiter describes, and which Gogo would prefer. Rather than baked oysters, for example, he wants bean soup. He orders for them both bean soup, herring, and meatballs. When the dinner is over, he does at least order a thousand dollars in chips for his date. Another side gag is Gogo's failure to make the love eyes with the Maharaja. He's completely immune. It may be that instead of sex, Gogo chose him as a conquest because he has a reputation for only falling for raven-haired beauties, and Gogo is naturally platinum blonde. Her powers of seduction land as well as a pair of snake eyes at one of the gaming tables. Ava Gabor's vignette may be the most subversive of the four. Her date is rich and of high society, but he's cheap, dull, and impolite. All this work for a dud, the picture asks, or at least I'm asking. Is this guy worth it? Go go shopped, Primped, dieted, strategized, labored to be gorgeous and entertaining for this man who's so dead-eyed and dreary that you would invent any excuse, chew your arm off, to get away from him at a cocktail party. You can probably guess that he falls for the first woman with jet-black hair at one of the tables. Paris' model was shot in only eight days in June 1953 from the 15th to the the 23rd. It's a quickie-bee picture, but it's a total gem. The original title was Nude at Midnight, and it's much preferable. The dress was designed by Anne Klein for the Junior Sophisticates Company of New York. Paris model is a woman's picture, a fable about the fortunes of the same dress in the lives of four different women. But it misses the mark when it comes to sassmouth logic, not to mention economics. The message here is when women pay too much for a dress, in their folly, it turns sour. Gabor spends eight hundred and ninety dollars to get her man. Paulette spends two hundred for an American knockoff. Marilyn Maxwell overpays, but then the twenty-one year old character Margaret Lawrence plays is depicted as the sensible one because she only paid $19 secondhand. She has the so-called happy ending with a marriage proposal from her clueless boyfriend. But I'd say the reverse is true. Ava Gabor has the most successful return on the dress. Remember, she doesn't actually pay the 890 for nude at midnight. She charges it to some hapless man. When he objects to the bill, she makes the love eyes at him, and he's happy to pay. The Maharaja walks out on the date, but good riddance, he was a dud. Ava's go-go isn't crestfallen. At the end of her vignette, Ava shrugs her shoulders and accepts the arm of the man who paid the bill for her dress. She has an escort home, a devoted admirer, and she comes out of the evening ahead, tomorrow, She will simply return the dress and get shop credit. The picture uses a bit of brilliant casting. Tom Conway plays the Maharaja. He was the older brother of suave actor George Sanders. When the brothers first arrived in Hollywood, they flipped a coin to see who would retain the family name for the screen. Tom lost and hence chose Conway. At some level, Ava and Tom spoofed their famous siblings, who were still married at the time Paris Model was made. Although by then, Jaja was deep into a wild affair with Dominican playboy Porfirio Rosa, And George, Jaja's Zsa third husband, was left to appeal to the Gabor matriarch Jolie, to order his wife to stop riding the polo player and return home to wash his socks. In Paris Model, Tom Conway pokes fun at his brother's reputation for being a lady killer, and Ava spoofs her sister's reputation for conquest, as well as her ability to get men to foot the bill. There was a rivalry between George and Tom, just like there was between Ava and Jaja. The brothers were not yet estranged when Paris Model was filmed, but years later, Tom asked to see George. When they met, he shared the grim news, his doctor's report that he'd just received. He had a terminal case of cirrhosis of the liver. He was not long for this world. George, notoriously penny-pinching, suddenly became generous. George gave Tom $40,000. He told him to go to Capri and enjoy himself until the end. Jaja explains what happened next. Tom met a doctor who had some kind of experimental treatment, which, although risky, might cure him rather than kill him. The doctor's questionable serum did the trick for Tom, or at least it improved his condition to let, allow him to live a little bit longer. In time, he returned to George for more money. George said to the effect, sorry, old boy, but you were supposed to die over there. George had had enough, and he cut his brother off cold. Tom's condition eventually worsened. He kept drinking, couldn't get work. At one point, Tom Conway was living in a $2 a day flop house in Venice Beach. Zsa went to visit Tom at the end when he was in the hospital. She gave him $200. She told him to tip the nurses so they would take good care of him until the end. The next day, the nurses rang. Tom left the hospital with the money that Zsa, Zsa had given him and went to see his girlfriend. He died in his girlfriend's bed that evening. Madame Jolie Gabor instilled a rivalry between her daughters that eclipsed more acrimonious feuds such as the one between Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine. Olivia and Joan had the freedom to stop speaking to each other if they chose, often for years at a time. But Mama Jolie was controlling to a degree that her daughters lacked the option to cut each other off. Magda, Jaja and Ava were raised to see marriage as a marketplace, and the match they made would settle their future. And their family was tight with each other. The Gabor sisters could not be just beautiful. they had to be the most beautiful. They couldn't just be stylish, they had to be the most fashionable women in society. Jolie ch- trained her daughters to look fabulous, even when they went to answer the front door. It's almost as if Jolie had a copy of the studio rule book for starlets. Their mother may have preached traditional values which prepared them for marriage, but her daughters could see that she was the one who created the innovations in the cultured pearl industry and who had the better eye for the family's jewel trade. The pressure to make a good marriage was certainly there, but a strong work ethic was also instilled in the Gabor sisters. And the ambition necessary to move on up and out. In her memoir, Ava explains that when she was a teenager in Budapest, she was engaged to be married. Then one evening, Ava met a tall blonde stranger and she ran off with him. They were married later in London. Ava was the first Gabor to arrive in America. Her groom was Swedish, but he lived in Hollywood, where he started a practice as an osteopath. Ava had dreamed of being an actress since she was a girl, and once she moved to the film colony, she quickly forgot about being a wife and decided to make a career for herself. During a visit to a dentist's office to have a tooth filled, a talent agent interrupted the grisly proceedings and asked Ava if she would like to be an actress. When she replied to the affirmative, the agent asked her to rise from the examination chair. He didn't ask about her experience or even her age. The first thing he said was that she would have to lose 10 pounds. Immediately after Ava's encounter with a town scout, she no longer spent the morning crying in bed, depressed and lonely, in a shabby hotel with a stranger she married. She thought, I was going to be a short blonde garbo. Before she knew it, the agent had a screen test for her in Paramount. She needed a dress for the screen test. She had no money, but she did have a mink coat, which had been a gift from her mother. It was summer in Hollywood, boiling hot, but Ava needed the bulletproof glamour from a mink coat to give her courage. Draped in mink, she marched into a department store and asked for a credit on account without anything else to recommend her save the mink. Ava walked out with a new dress. She instinctively knew how the business of stardom worked, always looked the part. Her mother had told her the same thing since she was a girl. In 1940, Ava Gabor wore a skimpy black dress and her mink coat for a screen test in Paramount studio. It was preceded by meetings, more than one with a group of men who wanted her to show them her personality. It might have meant something else, but Ava took it to mean speak so they get a sense of your type. Then they measured her against Gary Cooper. She felt herself shrink and Cooper grow even taller. The studio made a silent test. Ava was given a box with an evening gown inside. She had to run with the box, tear it open, and then put on the gown while she demonstrated excitement. For the second part of the test, they asked Eva to laugh and then cry. She felt a little mixed up by the end. Paramount signed Eva for a standard contract with an option at $75 a week. The first edict from the studio was that she needed to lose 10 more pounds. Eva had gone from 122 pounds when she arrived in America to 102 pounds for the camera in Hollywood. Where would I put the food, she wondered. She noted that American women ate more but somehow weighed less than the majority of the people in the world. From 9 to 6 o'clock each day, Eva worked with an acting coach in the studio. Paramount's in-house drama school had newcomers learn scenes, practice, and watch other actors. Ava's group included Susan Hayward and Jean Cagney, Jimmy's little sister. After six months of drama coaching, Ava had a second screen test, this time with sound. She settled into the film colony she bought a convertible car that didn't have a top, so when it rained, she drove around town under an umbrella at the wheel. In the evenings, she went to the cinema to study acting, but also to improve her English, so she didn't continue to make faux pas like when she asked a shop clerk to show her some dresses for street walking. In 1941, she was cast in her first picture, Forced Landing, which starred Fred McMurray and Mary Martin. When she thought they were going to take her off the picture because she looked too young to be convincing in a nurse's uniform, she stood on the set and bawled, red-faced, completely destroying the painstaking makeup applied by no doubt Wally Westmore. One of the film's producers walked along and diffused the situation by promising that they would find a role for her somewhere in the picture if she calmed down. In 1944, the studio dropped her option. Unemployed, Ava faced harsh realities about money that she had been sheltered from by her parents from when she was a child. She felt ill-prepared to deal with her husband's problems on top of her own. Months went by without an offer from a studio. Ava decided to pack her bags for New York and pursue her dream of acting for the stage. The minute she left, wires from David Selznick's office followed. They wanted her to return to Hollywood. Ava's agent told her that Selznick was hot and bothered to sign her for a production. The minute she arrived in New York, she returned with the reason of that Hungarian proverb that told her, a pigeon today is better than a squab tomorrow. Back in Hollywood, Selznick was suddenly too busy for a meeting. She waited, cooling her heels. Then 20th Century Fox rang with an offer. They wanted her for a part in A Royal Scandal, starring Tallulah Bankhead, directed and produced by Ernest Lubitsch. By 1950, Ava had had enough of the studio merry-go-round. She took control of her life and boarded the train for New York once more but this time she didn't tell anyone she was leaving she just left ava's ambitions for the stage were where she felt most happiness happiest and shine brightest although ava was not as famous as jaja she excelled in terms of an acting career And at a more personal level, she had a much more interesting and less conventional love life than her older sister. Ava wanted to find a home on the stage in dramatic plays, classics, or light comedy. She had a big hit on Broadway in The Happy Time in 1950. She made the cover of Life magazine. Ava didn't want to play a type or just herself. She played an Uncle Vanya on the stage, as well as the lead in Her Cardboard Lover. Ava felt most at home in the theater with a live audience and this organic sense of character, time, and place. It was less about glamour and close-ups for the camera and more about the heavy lifting of taking a show on tour with a company of players. Even if the play was a stinker, she had the backstage chatter and camaraderie, which made it all worthwhile. Ava was so ambitious that she managed appearing on stage every night along with hosting a weekly television chat show, which required military-grade precision for her schedule, with the help of multiple people, from cab drivers to traffic cops, while she legged it across town. Ava was worried about her future security. She did not want to rely on a man for support. She rolled her salary from the Broadway hit The Happy Time into a Fifth Avenue townhouse, The building was just under 10,000 square feet. Ava had a plan to divide the building into rentals, which would then pay for an apartment for herself. She was certain that she could do it, but that she still asked her mother's advice. Jolie, ever the gimlet-eyed entrepreneur, replied that Ava must be her dimmest offspring if she couldn't see that she could get 10 apartments out of that building. And she did. In time, Ava grew confident negotiating with the bank, the builders, and tenants. She made a host of decisions about design and fixtures. She had sunk permanent roots in her favorite city. She was her own woman in a way the other Gabors knew not. In 1952 to 1953, Ava was on the road touring a little play, Strike a Match, with ten Irishmen. And she was in her element. She loved hopping trains, rushing for interviews in the morning, fashion shows and radio interviews in the afternoon, and then a nap and a chat with the cast before the evening curtain. There was a rhythm of different yet the same that she found deeply comforting. Ava noted that the best way to thrive on tour was to travel with Pat O'Brien, as she didn't strike a match. Pat O'Brien, she said, knew at least five people in every town in America, and people fell over themselves to be generous to Pat, which invariably spilled over to his traveling companion. For a while, Ava was a New York disc jockey in the midnight to 2 a.m. slot. She appeared on television chat shows, radio shows, and toured the country multiple times. When the roles on stage and film dwindled, Ava retired to television in one of the most popular sitcoms of the era. She began playing Lisa in Green Acres when she was 46 years old, and the series ended when she was 52. Later, she became a business mogul with a fashion line in the early 1970s, followed by a wig empire. Women the world over wanted her icy blonde tresses, which gave her a nice little nest egg. Ava definitely had a more interesting love life than her older sisters. Where they, especially Jaja, tended to drift towards older men, father figures, and boring business types, or parasites, Ava Gabor's passions were kept secret until recently. One of the most enduring mysteries in film history is the story about the final hours of Ernest Lubitsch. Film historians and biographers reported that Lubitsch had died after an appointment with a sex worker. He got out of bed and then collapsed in the bathroom. The distraught woman he was with had been quickly removed from the scene. The woman in bed with Lubitsch was Ava Gabor. In his research on the Gaboratory, Author Sam Staggs reveals that it was Ava Gabor who was in bed with Lubitsch. Ava and Ernst had been having an affair that stretched for years. She was married at the time, which was part of the reason it stayed stayed secret for so long. They began their affair on the set of A Scandal in Paris. They were discreet, but they were lovers until his death in 1948. In her memoir, Ava wrote of her admiration for him. He had about him a pan-like quality, as though he had just come out of the woods holding a champagne glass. His conversation was all wit. He was one of the few men I've ever met who was always genuinely amused by the business of living. He teased me mercifully, pulled my leg, laughed at me, and made me love it and come back for more. I will never forget the pleasant evenings in which he managed to make his huge rooms feel cozy as a well-heated shack in the woods. Ava also had an on-and-off affair with Marlena Dietrich that lasted for years. One night, when Ava had a furious row with her third husband, John Williams, the one she blanked in the elevator, she rang Marlena and reached out for help. Marlena was at the door in a flash and turfed the plastic surgeon out the house. Can you imagine how glorious that scene was? In his research, Staggs spoke to and fre- f- met frequently with Zha daughter Francesca. Francesca had asked him if he knew that Ava was lesbian. She seems more likely bisexual. Ava had love affairs with Dietrich and Tallulah Bankhead, as well as Tyrone Power, Glenn Ford, and Frank Sinatra. I'll wager that Ava's lovers never called her stupid or held her out of a window only by her dress, as George Sanders had done with Zsa Zsa, as I told you about in episode 71. Although Ava was married multiple times, her marriages did not define her in the way that it did for her sisters. The roles that Zsa Zsa took over time dwindled to playing herself or parodies of herself. Not that she minded, she was Zsa Zsa, a work of art in her own right. But when I watch clips of her as an older woman, as either the guest or more often the punchline on TV chat shows, my blood boils. Watching David Letterman smirk in her face and make fun of Zsa Zsa is revolting. Ava largely escaped being a prisoner of her own celebrity. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. Orchids and Salami by Ava Gabor. Finding Zsa, Zsa the Gabor's Behind the Legend by Sam Staggs. Once in a Lifetime is Never Enough by Zsa Zsa Gabor. Memoirs of a Professional Cad by George Sanders. Join me next time for episode 75 when I talk about Susan Hayward in Smash Up, Story of a Woman. Thanks for listening.